We're going to be looking at a few different things here today in John chapter 5. We're going to see, first of all, how Jesus is greater than sickness. Secondly, Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. And thirdly, Jesus is greater than our suppositions. Whatever way we might think about Jesus, what we might believe, limitations we might put, Jesus is greater than all of those things. And so this is a great account that we look at here in John 5. It says right there in verse 1, let's get into it. It says, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. Now, here's what's interesting, is that we see Jesus now, once again, making his way to Jerusalem for what? For a feast. A feast was... Uh, there were several feasts that the Jews would, would you know, have these times and periods of celebration. Three main feasts that all Jewish males were required to go and, and observe and attend in Jerusalem. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So what's interesting is here's Jesus now, who's come to this world not to abolish the law, but ultimately to fulfill it. And here's a Jewish man, Jesus, who's coming and observing. He's following in complete obedience to the Word of God, the commandments of God. He's not saying, oh, listen, I don't need to go to that. Now, it's all pointing to me anyways. What do I need to be there for, right? No, he's going, he's observing, he's setting the pattern here that he's following in God's Word, the commandments. Now, we're not sure what feast this was that he goes to, whether it was Passover or Pentecost, whatever it might be, not super important right now, but he makes his way to Jerusalem, as he did. Remember, he had been up in the Galilee region where he conducted most of his his ministry, that was kind of like his headquarters was up in Galilee, but now he makes his way to Jerusalem as a good Jewish man would do. But as he comes in Jerusalem, notice he goes to this pool of Bethesda that's near the Sheep Gate, all right? Now, all around Jerusalem, there were various gates that you would kind of enter in through, as there are today. You, you go to Jerusalem today, and you will walk in through these different gates, some of them very old and, and very cool to kind of go in through. Well, the Sheep Gate here is sitting in the uh, northeast area. It's up on the map called the Lion's Gate, but that is the Sheep Gate that we're talking about here. And you'll see the pools of Bethesda right in front of it. And you'll notice that just below it to the south is the, the Temple Mount, all right, where the temple sat in Jesus' day, which makes it interesting that this Sheep Gate was called that because this is where the sacrifices would come in, basically, as people were bringing the sacrifices to be sacrificed there at the temple. So here's Jesus now. So he makes his way, as John 5 tells us, to the pools of Bethesda that's near the Sheep Gate, which I think is very kind of profound, even interesting, because here's Jesus coming to be the final sacrifice. He's here on this earth for one reason, that's to lay his life down, to go to the cross, to, to die for the sins of the world, just as John the Baptist would oftentimes remind him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here's Jesus now at the Sheep Gate who's the very Lamb of God, who's going to pay the ultimate price and be the final sacrifice for our sins, yours and mine. So kind of an interesting sort of dynamic at work here as Jesus is, is coming to minister to a man there. Now, in this account, the Apostle John gives some details about the, the pool of Bethesda. First, he says, it's near the sheep's gate, as we just covered. And secondly, that it had five porches there in verse 2. Five porches. That was kind of a covered entranceway. So this pool is kind of like this five-sided pool here. Now, because the healing by this pool is only mentioned in John's gospel, there were, you know, liberals, critics kind of of the Bible that 
concluded that this was a later addition by someone that's not very familiar with Jerusalem. And, and they just kind of made up a legend since that pool had not been discovered for centuries, you see. There are a lot of people that thought, oh, this is just kind of, nah, just a story that somebody's put in there. That John, who wrote much later than the Synoptic Gospels, just kind of added later on. But then it was in the you know, beginning of the 19th century, that as archaeologists are there in Jerusalem and digging around, that they discover these pools of Bethesda, right where John said it was, by the Sheep's Gate now, located kind of there in that Muslim-controlled sector of Jerusalem. And as you go to Jerusalem today, you get to go and see the pools of Bethesda, and you get to kind of walk around and see all this, which is just so cool, because I love how the Bible and archaeology just keep proving critics wrong of God's word. How many people love to say, and, and, and even up until more recent times where there's been things, even about Pilate, you know, well, we have no record of Pilate in, in, in our history. And so, man, I don't know if you can really trust the Bible when he mentioned it. And then all of a sudden you discover the Pilate stone that's on display there. And you just start to see again how it's not so much archaeology that's proving the Bible right, but the Bible just proving everything that they're finding to be true and right. Because the Bible is so solid and dependable. And so uh, it's a great area to go and see. I love being there at the pools of Bethesda and Church of St. Anne that's right there. Beside it were just some of the best acoustics. How many people have been in the Church of St. Anne and just sung there? Yes, Lauren, you've been there. And like, oh man, it's just incredible, right? You just Did you sing when you were there? Did you take, oh man, okay. You go to the, and you just, you bring everybody together and you just sing out and you just stop. Everybody stops and then just the acoustics just continue. It's like one of the best sounding places acoustically. It's cool, but that has nothing to do with our subject here today. And I'm just dreaming about Israel. By the way, we're going, we're planning a trip next March uh, of 2020. Is that correct? 2020, is that? Man, that just sounds so weird, doesn't it? Anyways. Next March, uh, brochures are coming out very soon, and uh, another trip to Israel. And so you gotta, you gotta come. If you haven't been yet, you gotta come. And if you have been, you're gonna want to go again. Anyway, so plan for that. All right, look at verse three. Now, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool. And stirred up the water then. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're reading from a, a newer translation, whether it be the NIV, the ESV, or the NLT, you'll notice there's no verse 4. Half of verse 3 is gone and all of verse 4 is gone. In fact, your Bibles would just go verse 3 to verse 5. Anybody have a Bible like that that just goes verse 3 to verse 5? You're going, where's? Who's counting? Who's doing this? And so they missed a... Well, here's the deal. Just in case you're wondering is that a lot of the newer translations, they, they gather their, you know, they're, they're consulting some of the earliest manuscripts that have been discovered, okay? So they're going right to the earliest manuscripts where this verse is not in those earliest manuscripts, but then where the new King James, and King James will receive their text from is the Texas Receptus, and it's the majority text, there's the majority of those in, in existence, and they contain this verse. So there's, there's debate over, does this verse really belong in God's word? Was that added afterwards? Now, I think it's interesting because when you read verse 7, it seems to kind of fit then having verse 4 there because in verse 7, the man answered him. Look at that, verse 7. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. So verse 4 is kind of explaining, giving his context as to what was kind of 
happening there in that day. Nevertheless, here's the deal. It's, it makes for a very interesting scene going on. Leaves us kind of wondering if this is really how things went down. Was there, you know, a literal angel that would just kind of show up and secretly begin to stir the waters, creating a little game of who wants to be healed, you know? Like there's all these angels in these supernatural bleachers all waiting to see the rush of people. Who's going to get there first, you know? And everybody's bumping their way like a big rugby match or something. And so it's, you kind of get this idea like what's really going on here? Now, some believe that you know, this water was kind of built on a, or the pool built on the natural spring. And so at times, perhaps there was just a bubbling of the water from the, the natural spring that would cause people just to kind of think something's happening. God's doing something. Maybe because of the connection to the temple, they thought this is a, this is a holy site. And so we believe that God's doing something when that happens. We want to get in and, and be healed. And perhaps God was just using that to kind of be that point of contact to sort of, you know, stir that faith. Just as like the woman that we, we read about in the Gospels that, that had that bleeding for many years, just want to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and be made well. And when she did, there was that power Jesus felt go out from him. And so it's oftentimes that, that God just kind of, honors that release of faith so we don't know if this was something going on it's you know definitely not a a superstitious thing maybe it was just a a legend that people believed that was happening here that and so they're going they're flocking there that they thought it was an angel but it was just a natural thing nevertheless god props is doing a work there among many we're going to see that god is going to do a work here on this day as this man is gathered there who's been sick for a period of time and we're going to see that God didn't even need faith in this person to heal him. That wasn't a requirement, you see. Jesus is going to come and do a work and exercise his power over the sickness. Look at verse 5. Here's where we begin to see about this man. It says, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? Now think about this here for a second with me. 38 years, this man had been dealing with this situation, this condition, this sickness. I'm sure there were times where perhaps he just wanted to abandon all hope and think, this is just my plight in life. Uh, Nothing's going to change. This is just how I've got to deal with life from here on in. Maybe there's been days where he's just given up all hope. But yet on this day, he is going to meet Jesus, who's more than just a man. He's, a, he's God who's going to come and bring a great healing. Jesus is going to meet with him at a specific time and for a specific person, a, a specific purpose to do this work in his life. And it's, I think, a good encouragement for us to recognize that whatever you might be going through, and for however long... You might have been dealing with something in your life. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're still dealing with something that you're wondering, is this ever going to change? Can God ever do anything about this? Is this just the way it's going to be? Well, this man and this story in God's word here today gives us that kind of hope and, and understanding that, you know, God knows, God sees. Jesus comes and he knew that this man had already been in that condition for a long time already. This wasn't a surprise to Jesus. He knows. And, and Jesus is coming to do a work at a specific time and for a specific purpose. And also understand something. That there were a lot of other people there at the pool that day. That we don't read anything about them getting made well. But this one man. Perhaps 
Jesus is allowing you to be in a certain situation or condition to bring greater glory to him. There are things that God is going to take us through because it's going to be an opportunity for him to be glorified in and through our lives in a greater way than he would have been otherwise. You think you read about people like, you know, Joni Erickson Tata, who had a, a horrific accident, you know, paralyzed and and yet she recognizes that you know God's used her now in a greater way she believes than than he would have otherwise recognizing and seeing that whatever you might be going through God wants to work in that and through that to do a work for his glory alone and maybe there will be a day where God wants to touch you and make you well to reveal a greater work of God trust him Keep holding on by faith and hope in what God wants to do. And keep allowing your life to be used of the Lord day by day, whatever situation or or condition you are in. Just be asking God, be glorified in my life. Even in in my pain or my problems, Lord, be glorified. And if it's your will to bring healing and strength, then Lord, would you do that? But do it so that, again, you are glorified in and through it. Now notice what Jesus says here. This is... Interesting. I love this. Jesus says to this man, do you want to be made well? Do you? I mean, that's like asking me, do you want to have a Starbucks Americano waiting for you in your office every time you come to church? Yeah, you don't have to ask me about that. Just, yeah, that's a given. That's an obvious, right? And maybe just remind Emily about that. But um, like this is a question you kind of go, I mean, Jesus, that's kind of ridiculous. Are you serious? Do you really need a... Ask that is not a bit obvious. But you see, what Jesus is doing here is that he's drawing this man into confession or, or into an admission on his own part of his need. Letting this man say, Jesus, here's what I want. Here's what I need. You see, Jesus says in John 16, 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. James chapter 4, the end of verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And I wonder how often we're missing out perhaps on what God wants to do because we're just not coming to him and saying, hey, I have this need. God, I'm, I'm asking that you could do this here in my life. Lord, would you move here? Would you work in this way here? And trust the Lord for the rest. It's just like salvation, isn't it? Because Jesus knows that you need to be saved, but yet he waits for your own admission from your own lips to say, Jesus, I need you. I see my condition and my need. And I'm calling out to you right now, save me. Jesus is waiting for that so that he can act and do that. And he's doing that with this man here. Nevertheless, look at this. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I've no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me, gets in my way. And Jesus said to him, Hey, rise, take up your bed. And walk. Now the way that the sick man answered Jesus is kind of is kind of sad, because what this sick man is doing, he's looking at all the excuses, all the problems, all the obstacles in front of him, rather than looking to the one who's saying, "Do you want to be made well?" I think we can oftentimes fall prey to that, can't we? Where God wants to work in your life, God wants to do something in and through you, and yet all we can do sometimes is look at all the obstacles, all the things that are getting in the way, and we throw out our excuses. But what about this, God? 
How are we going to work through that? And God, God is just saying, stop looking at those things and just lift your eyes a little bit higher and look to me and look to my strength and what I'm able to do. Because God is not just an overcomer, but he's made us overcomers as well. And we need to move forward in the strength of the Lord by faith in God and not allow the obstacles, the things that we might think are in our way to impede us because with God, those things are nothing. There's nothing that God can't do. Don't let those things impede you from moving forward. So Jesus simply looks to this man and says, hey, forget the excuses. It's almost like Jesus kind of cuts them off. This man's going, but what about There's everybody getting in the way? They're getting in front of me. It's like, Jesus, hey, bud, just rise. Just get up. Pick up your bed. Let's go. What are you waiting for? Forget about all that. You don't need the waters there. Just get moving. And and doing so, as I said earlier, without this man seeming that he's exercising a lot of faith to do so. You know, there are some people that say, oh, well, if you just had faith, you'd be made well. There are those that operate in that kind of, you know, faith healing circles and feel like, oh, boy, if you just had faith, you'd be made well. Your problem is you don't have enough faith. And there's those, there are those that will say you can you know, walk in divine healing. But here's the thing is that God doesn't need faith. He wants you to grow in faith. He wants, you, he, he wants to see that faith continue to be exercised. But there's a work that God can do without much faith. God is doing a work here to again show his power and his strength. And to be a reminder for us that when we do walk in faith. And God is able to do great things. So here's the thing for us is let's not get caught up in what might be holding you back. Get up to the power and the strength of Jesus and move forward in faith as this man does. And look at verse 9. And immediately the man was made well. Took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Isn't that great? And immediately this man was made well. See, this man didn't have to go through any kind of physiotherapy sessions. You know, it's not like, well, boy, this is great. This is going to take some time. He's not walking away with a limp or a walker or a cane. It's like immediately he was made well and he gets up and he's walking. And he's moving. This idea when Jesus says rise, it's, it's using this, this word, the same word as we use for resurrection. It's, it's as though there's like this just new life being granted to him. Resurrected life where he's like made whole and made new. This is just a stirring of the, and, and even a, a, a coming together of just the old parts. It's like just a new life is imparted in a sense where he's told to rise. This resurrection power at work in him now. And he is moving forward in this great work of God. You see, when God calls you to do something, he gives you the enabling to do it. With God's calling comes his enabling. If Jesus says rise... We don't have to wonder how. We just need to respond. If God says, go, we don't have to say, well, what about this? What about the cost? What about that? We just need to move forward because when God calls, he's going to enable. He's going to provide. He's going to meet those needs. And sometimes he wants you to begin to step out without having all the answers there. In fact, most of the time, I'd say, when he says go, he's not going to 
present the whole picture to you. He just wants you to begin to move in faith and he'll begin to show that to you as you begin to go. So this man is made well immediately. And notice, I love this here. Jesus did this in a very calculated way because John records now first that this happened on the Sabbath. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. I think very purposefully comes and he does this work on the Sabbath. It's as though Jesus is kind of pushing some buttons here. I love that about Jesus. You know, he's just like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of stir things up from what people are thinking or maybe living for, how they're responding. I'm going to just kind of stir things up a little bit here. Not to trouble them or create unnecessary controversy, but to get them to think properly. And so he does this on the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was an important day for the Jew. All right? It was in, in God's commandment, the to keep the seventh day holy. It was a day of rest. Our Saturday is, is the Jewish Sabbath. And so from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night is their Sabbath. And so even today, the Jews are, you know, keeping this holy. And, and so God said in Exodus chapter 20, when he gave the Ten Commandments, that this is a holy day to do no work on it. So don't do any work. So the Jews began to go, okay, well, what, what constitutes work then? What does that mean exactly? What are we allowed to do on the Sabbath? What are we not allowed to do on the Sabbath? So they began to kind of put together different rules and, and, and interpretations of what that meant exactly. And so they began to say, well, you can't carry any kind of a burden on the Sabbath. So this man, when Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed, which would have been like a mat that would have been rolled out, sat on, pick up your bed and walk. This man was now in violation of what the Jews thought was about keeping the Sabbath holy. This man was breaking their rules in a sense. See, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and when he's doing this. And he's doing it for a purpose, for a reason. Because Jesus is not only looking to show that he's greater than sickness, but that he's greater than the Sabbath. Our second point here today, Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. Look at verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, um, had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Now, let me remind you, whenever we are, are going through John's gospel, and we come upon this kind of term, the Jews. And the, the Jews that are in, in kind of this, this clash with Jesus. We're not just talking about Jews nationally and just generally. We're talking about the Jews who were the religious leaders primarily. We're talking about those that were in this establishment of, you know, upholding God's law, preserving these things. And they were the ones that were kind of on the lookout to make sure everybody else was following in suit, right? So it's the religious establishment when we are, are, that we're referring to when we talk about the Jews in the Gospel of John. So here it is, the Jews now, and they confront this man. And this is kind of a joke what's going on. It's a bad joke, but it's a joke that's going on because this man, who has been sick for 38 years, is suddenly and miraculously healed. And yet, what happens here? All these religious leaders can see is how he's breaking their law. They're not, they're not saying, what? What happened? You've been sitting here for so long and now you're well. How is this happening? What's, what's going on? They're not rejoicing in this man being made well. All they're doing is saying, you're breaking our law. What should have been a time of rejoicing 
became a time of condemning on this man. And you go, what? How could that be? You know, such is the case for those who are living under law and legalism, where you think it's by what you do that you are right with God. Listen, there's no joy in that because you never feel like you are doing enough. And you'll always find people that are doing more that bring you into condemnation, or you will look for others that are doing less than you and condemn them to make you feel better. Only you end up having now both of you just feeling miserable because you still realize I'm just not doing enough. That's what it's like to live under legalism and the law. Where we begin to think that it's by what I do that I'm going to be right with God or receive some kind of righteousness. See, Christians should not be walking around sour, condemning, or pointing out faults. We should be walking around rejoicing in the grace that we've received in Jesus Christ. It's by His grace alone that we are saved. It's not of ourselves, not our works, lest anyone should boast. It's all through his grace, unmerited favor that he's poured out on you to save you despite who you are or what you've done. This is a free gift of my friends. I am just so in awe of the grace of God. And I want daily to be continuing to grow in the wonder and the beauty of his grace to know that I can rest knowing that I'm saved because of what Jesus did for me, not what I do for myself. How freeing that is. How wonderful, how, how joyous it is to know that. Amen? Amen? I hope you're with me on that. Because we quickly fall prey and easily get kind of caught up in again that feeling like, I got to earn it. I got to work for it. I got I to gotta do better. God's not sitting there saying, oh, come on. You're just about there. You can do it. Come on, just a little bit more. Just try a little bit harder. I want you to be in. God's not saying no. That's what I'm relying on for you to be in heaven. God's just saying, just believe in Jesus, his righteousness for you. And the work he's done for you, just trust him. Give your life to him. That's all. It's grace. I'm so thankful for that. So this man, I love it. He just simply replies to these guys that are just... Kind of really being a joy robber, ruining his day. He's just been healed after 38 years and now he's dealing with these guys. He's just like, man, this man told me to pick up my bed. Talk to him. Just kind of passing the buck, right? We like to do that. We just like just dismiss it to somebody else. That's what Adam did in the garden, right? The woman made me do it. And then Eve's like, the serpent, he made me do it. They're always passing the buck. But this man's just like going, hey, talk to Jesus. He's the one that told me to pick up my mat. But he doesn't know it's Jesus. He's like, I I don't know who it is. Some man doesn't know who it is. This guy, I think, when he got healed, was just so caught up in the work that was taking place and all of a sudden his body being transformed, having, you know, being able to move and be made well. I'm sure he's just like in awe of this. And all of a sudden he looks probably and Jesus is gone. It says that Jesus withdrew because the multitudes were in that place. And remember, Jesus is operating on this divine timetable where he's being very again, calculated to make sure that, that, you know, his mission 
is not going to be impeded by crowds gathering around and trying to maybe elevate or, or push him into that role of, of Messiah because what they viewed the Messiah as was the guy that was going to now establish you know Israel's rule again and overthrow Rome. So they think he's the Messiah. Well, let's get it going, man. Let's finally, you know, kick Rome out of here and let's establish our kingdom again of Israel. And that wasn't the work that Jesus was coming to do the first time. He was coming to establish his rule in the hearts of men. At his second coming, that's when we're going to see him do that work that they were expecting. But he knew that if, if word got out, this is the guy that we've been waiting for, well, his ministry would greatly be, you know, kind of, impeded and, and hindered from, from doing the work that he came to do the first time. So he would withdraw oftentimes until the right time. Jesus will say, my hour now has come. Now is the time. But everything until then, he was in complete control of everything going on. He slips away. But notice this, look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you've been made well. Sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. Though this man had lost Jesus, this man was not lost by Jesus. Jesus knows exactly where you are, what you're going through, and what you need. And so Jesus comes now, and he meets this man. Just as as we read in Luke 19.10, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus has come to seek you out, and he knows exactly where you are, what you need. And so Jesus comes and he meets this man as he's sitting in the temple there. And he begins to say, listen, you've been made well. You've been made well. Sin no more now, lest the worst thing come upon you. Now, that can mean a couple different things. Sin, I believe, can carry with it great consequences that will afflict a person even physically remember david we were going through this on wednesday night as we were covering the the book of psalms and and david when he fell into sin with bathsheba and adultery and the murder of her husband uriah well david kind of took some time where he didn't really want to deal with it he kind of buried that well let's read what david says here in psalm 32 verse 3 to 5 he says when i kept silent My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David understood that when he tried to hide this and bury the sin and hold on to it, man, life was tough. It's like his bones just ached inside. I think there was a physical toll. It took on David, as oftentimes it can. But also, what Jesus could be implying is that, listen, it's one thing to be made well physically. That's a great thing. But what I really care about is your soul. I want to see you made well spiritually. I want to see you leave sin behind and follow me. I want you to know what not just life and health is like, but life eternal I want you to be in relationship with the Father. That's the greater work that Jesus wants to do in every life. Not just heal, but to heal the soul and bring forgiveness of sin. So Jesus encourages men, sin no more. Lest you experience something worse. Because dying in your sin, man. Those 38 years of sickness will be nothing compared to what it will be like when we enter into eternity apart from Jesus. That's something heavy. And Jesus is looking to spare all people from that. 
Look at verse 15. So the man departed. Now he told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now this is just getting a little bit ridiculous, right? Do do you see what we're reading here? They're basically saying, this Jesus is breaking our law. So let's kill him. Let's break our law because he's breaking our law. That's kind of what they're saying. It doesn't make sense, right? They were ready to violate their law to try to preserve their law. It's just ludicrous. But Jesus, and here's the thing, and you need to catch this, okay? Jesus has not broken their law at all. He was just going against their own traditions and the rules that they made regarding the law. They had made their traditions more rigid than the very law was. Jesus wasn't doing anything wrong. Jesus didn't do anything bad by healing, healing a man on the Sabbath. You think God's upset with that? You think God's going, oh, why did you have to do it on the Sabbath? Oh, man. Why did you? Oh. God's not upset that a good work took place on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. That wasn't the heart of the law. Well, God desires to do good. Sabbath or no Sabbath. What's interesting is that this devotion to the rabbi's interpretation, it still continues on to this day, even in modern times here. There was a news report in 1992 there. It said this, tenants let three apartments in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burn to the ground while they asked a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law because observant Jews believed that making a phone call on the Sabbath would be, you know, violating the law because it would break that electrical current, which would be considered a form of work. So in the 30 minutes that it took the rabbi to figure out whether this would be okay or not, two other neighboring apartments burned to the ground. All because they're worried about breaking the Sabbath. And yet they allow these three apartment buildings to burn. See, the law was becoming nothing more than a source of pride, ultimately, for these religious leaders in in showing how righteous they were. And that's ultimately what happens when people begin to live, live in legalism and try to live by a, a form of rules is it begins to feed their their pride. Because what they're doing, without even realizing it sometimes, is that they're basing now their standing with God based on what they're doing. They're going, look at, look at how holy I am. Look at all the good I'm doing. How could God ever turn me away now? I'm so righteous. And, and I've been guilty of that before. I've been guilty thinking that If I do these things, well, then I'm more holy than others. Growing up, I would only listen to Christian music. I thought secular music, oh, man, if anybody listens to secular music, well, they're definitely not saved. And I would hold this kind of like, look at how solid of a Christian I am. I don't even listen to the radio unless it's 106.5. I'm so righteous. And you? You're listening to secular music? Oh, I'll be praying for you. And and I would begin to consider that I'm more righteous than others based on what I'm doing. You see how easy it is to fall into this kind of 
legalistic mindset, this idea that feeds our pride to make us think that we're better or we're more righteous because of what we're doing. Do you understand that you are not righteous by anything that you do? You can't add to the righteousness of God. You're righteous because of your faith in Jesus and Him alone. It's by grace alone that you're saved, not grace and you listening to Christian music, or grace and you going to church twice a week, or grace and reading the Bible. Those things don't save you. Only the grace of God saves you. There's nothing you can add to it. So that I can just rest now in that grace of God and know that whether this person is doing that or, or doing this, I don't condemn them. I don't judge them. I go, man, praise the Lord for grace. And I'm no better than you for doing what I do or what I don't do. We're just on the same level ground of God's grace. I'm so thankful for that. You see, from the days of the early church, some Christians kind of saw an allegorical purpose in this account. In, in the thinking of some Christians, the man here in chapter 5 represents Israel. The five porches represent the law of God, the Ten Commandments. The 38 years represent the time of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And the waters represent baptism. And in this thinking, the allegory might go like this. All Israel waited for the Messiah amidst the law. They were afflicted for 38 years and could not enter the promised land. In and of themselves, they kept coming short until, you know, the waters of baptism and and Jesus came and, and brought salvation to Israel. But here's the thing, is that this passage really shows just the futility of living religiously. If you think you're going to be going to be accepted by God because of what you do, you're going to recognize, just as this man did, you're always going to come up short. Just when this man thought, maybe this is my day that I'm going to be made well. Oh, the water's stirring. Quick, let's try to get active. Let's do a work here to try to be made. Oh, somebody beat me to it. This man kept coming up short. If you're living religiously, if you're thinking it's by your works, you're going to be saved, you're going to recognize that you're going to keep coming up short and you're going to remain in that state where you're feeling desolate and discouraged and down and wondering, is there any hope? There's no joy or blessing or comfort or assurance when you're living legalistically, when you're living by law, when you're thinking that my works are going to add to my salvation. This man realized I kept coming up short until Jesus came and touched my life. Until Jesus came and did a work of grace. You know what's so wonderful is that the pools of Bethesda, that word Bethesda means house of mercy, house of grace. And I love when we go to Israel, I love teaching at this place and I get to Teach you John chapter 5 right there, sitting by the pools of Bethesda, and it's so wonderful. And what's great is that, you know, on our tour, we'll oftentimes start up in the Galilee region where everything's just kind of nice and relaxed and comfortable. And then as we make our way on the tour down towards Jerusalem, you start to see the religious fervor pick up. You start to see the Orthodox Jews walking around thinking that, you know, if we abide by all these rules that, you know, we're pleasing God, and you see religious Religion pick up and we come in the pools of Bethesda and we're just reminded, guys, house of mercy here, house of grace. It's all by grace that we're saved. Religion, you're going to keep coming up short. If you're living religiously, if you're living by your own works. And yeah, I beat this drum a lot. But I do so because I hear it so often among Christians that keep thinking that They're going to heaven because they're a good person. 
because they try to do good things. Even when I ask people, why should you go to heaven? They'll look at me kind of like, oh, yeah, ooh, well, I just hope. I just hope I've done enough. I'm like, you're missing it. There's somebody that's already done everything for you. And it's just by your faith in him alone. It's by Jesus and by his grace. Hold on to him. Be in Jesus and you're saved and with an assurance that you're going to heaven. That's why I beat this drum a lot because, man, I hear people that say they're Christians and they keep missing it. Man, you have Jesus in your life? If you're in Jesus, you have everything you need. It's by his grace. Praise the Lord for that. Well, last point here. We've got to move on. How are we doing? Oh, my word. Okay. Last point we've seen. Jesus greater than sickness. Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. Now he's greater than our suppositions. Because again, just like these religious leaders, it's so easy to kind of limit Jesus to think, oh no, wait a second. You can't do that. It's not that easy. We can't operate that way. We limit Jesus. We have a false belief about Jesus. Well, he's greater than all of our suppositions. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father's been working until now and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. Now they're really feeling like, now we got something. Now they need to break the Sabbath. Now he's saying he's equal with God. So now we really feel good about killing him. All right. Now, what's interesting is Jesus says, my father's been working until now, and so have I. And in saying my father, he's basically laying claim to his deity, that he and the Father are one. The Jews recognize that because now they're wanting to kill him because he's making himself equal with God. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he says, my Father. He says, my Father's been working until now. See, what he's saying is that God is always at work. He never stops. He never takes a break. The, the goodness and the grace of God is always flowing. It's always available. God never takes a moment just to take a break. You'll never come to God and he'll be like, you know what, I'm just on my 15 right now. I'll come back in a little bit. Or, you know what, man, I punched out for the day. I'm just, my feet are up. Just come back tomorrow. You'll never hear God say that. He'll never turn you away. God is always available and always at work and he never stops working, you see. Now, the Jews are really steaming here at this point. They've got two faults against, against Jesus. Violating the Sabbath, making himself equal with God. Look at verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus, you see, he's not acting by his own will or, or on his own desires or, or whims. He's not breaking any protocol here in the work that he's doing because he's doing all things according to the Father and in complete line with the Father. He's not veered off course at all. He's completely doing things according to the will of the Father. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Now here's the great thing. The Father loves the Son and shows, himself, shows Him all things that He Himself does. There's great love at work within the Trinity. The Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
they've always existed together. All right? Jesus didn't kind of, you know, wasn't created when he came to this earth. Jesus has always been in existence. He's always been at work with the Father. And there's always been this love and, and fellowship. Here's the great thing about the Trinity is that it shows just this, this relationship and fellowship that is a part of the Godhead and that God has invited us in. God didn't come to redeem a world because he was lonely. God came and redeemed a world to show his love to and to invite into fellowship with the Godhead that's always been functioning that way. I think that's just so wonderful. God didn't need something from us. He gave and shared what he was already experiencing in the Trinity with us and invited us in. That is so wonderful. So Jesus simply tells these critics here now, look at the, the, the second part of verse 20, and he'll show them greater works than these. Greater works that you may marvel. As the Father raises the dead, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So greater works. You'll see, you, you think healing a man that's been sick for 38 years or something? Just you wait. Because you're going to see the dead rising. And they've already encountered that in the Old Testament. People raised to life in Scripture. You've seen it with the young boy in Elijah in 1 Kings 17. The Shunammite son with Elijah in 2 Kings 4. You'll see Jesus raising the son of the widow from Nain. Jairus' daughter. Lazarus. Be raised from the dead. So here's this now power over life that Jesus has. That's been given by the Father. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See, only God is able to judge, right? Only God can do that. And, and if judgment is given to the Son, then it shows that the Son is equal to the Father. Because judgment and giving of life are characteristics that are unique to God. No one else can do that. No one else can judge because only God knows the very heart of man, which is really where judgment needs to take place, is knowing the motive behind things. He knows the heart of man. So he's able to judge. Jesus is doing that. And so basically, Jesus says, if you want to honor the Father, then honor the Son. And that's just hitting these Jews right between the eyes because they were sitting there looking at Jesus as being the guy they want to kill. And what Jesus is saying is, Do you know if you take me out, you're not just dishonoring God, but you're doing that against God. You're saying, we don't want you any longer, God. If you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring the Father. And these religious leaders would have thought that they were the only ones that were really, truly honoring the Father. But if they didn't receive Jesus, then they weren't honoring God. Well, it's a hard pill for some of these to hear. But he's building, Jesus is building his case here on just the equality with the Father. Here's what he said to us in these verses here. Christ's threefold equality with the Father. He's equal in works. He's equal in judgment. And he's equal in honor. People who ignore Christ but who claim to worship God are deceived. And there's a lot of people that will say, you know, Jesus never, never said he was God in Scripture. He never he never claimed that, and yet we see over and over again in Scripture how the Jews responded to the things Jesus was saying because they said, he's making himself out to be God. Picking up stones, ready to stone them, they're ready to kill him here. Jesus is God. 
And if you are ignoring Christ by thinking that you're in relationship with God, well, you're missing it. Because it all comes about through Jesus and through the work He's done for us. Here's some things that we can take away with us here today. And it says, or first of all, what have you been dealing with or living with for a period of time? Have you lost hope in God or thought that your condition can never change? That this is just the way that you're going to be? But yet we see in the, our account here that Jesus comes and he makes all things new. Don't lose hope in what Jesus can do. Secondly, have you been caught up in rules and legalism? Have you been thinking that it's by your works that you can be saved? See, religion restricts you from receiving the greater work Jesus has for you, and that's salvation by grace. May you rejoice. And if you are living life where you're beating yourself up, thinking, oh, I'm so lousy, I'm so awful. Oh, God, how can you ever accept me? Well, I don't know if you've come to know what grace really is. Because we should be walking around with great joy more than others. Knowing that we're saved through what Jesus has done for us. May you receive that. I, I don't want you to leave here today the same as you've come. Whether it's through a, a condition, uh, uh, an issue you've been facing in your life for some time. Let's ask the Lord right now to do a work. A work of healing. A work of strength. Let's cause Him to, to renew that joy of our salvation. To know that, thank you Jesus, it's not by what I do. It's by what you've done for me. So would you join with me in prayer right now and let's take these things to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you here right now and we do thank you, Lord, for the greater work you've done in saving us, bringing forgiveness of sin. And we're so glad that it's not by what we do, it's by your grace. And I ask, Lord, that you would just come and, and remind and renew that joy, that salvation to us, Lord, to know that, God, you've done it all. And may we stop striving and, and trying to do the work ourselves. May we just trust you completely and be surrendered to you. And be living with just such joy and thanks and praise of you. And I pray for those here today that might be dealing with a, a sickness, a condition that they've been dealing with for maybe a long time, maybe it's recent. But I pray, Lord, right now that you'd come and bring healing into their life, Lord. That you would make them well. And God, would you just cause them to have hope, Lord, in what you're doing. And maybe it's not for this time that the healing is to come, but it's for this time that you want to do a work in the midst of that to reveal greater glory for you, then I pray, Lord, that you would give them strength to continue on with faith in what you're doing, to trust you, to know that you're at work here, God. So would you strengthen them in that? Let's do a work, Lord, here today in our church and in, in all that's going on. May we move out from here and just be witnesses of you now, proclaiming the great name of Jesus, the name above all other names. So I pray this now in your awesome name, Jesus. Amen.